Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. He's a two-decade veteran of labels like Mille Plateau, Trezor, and Novamute. But that wouldn't get you any closer to pinning down Christian Vogel. From fiery rave tracks, to deeply experimental electronic explorations, to something resembling pop, Vogel has been a musical shapeshifter over countless albums, EPs, and aliases. Polyphonic Beings, which has just been released via Shit Catapult, is his latest evolution. It's heavy, appealingly strange, and a wholly unique statement for 2014. But in conversation with Holly Dicker at our Berlin office recently, he gave the sense that the care he puts into his productions and compositions is meant to help them stick around longer than a particular time and place. The pair touched on his latest musical turn and his personal and artistic history, one which winds through Chile, Barcelona, the University of Sussex, and Prenzlauerberg, to name just a few. Christian, I was hoping we could start in Brighton and you could paint us a bit of a picture about the kind of early 90s scene there. Okay, flashback. Mm -hmm. So I was in Brighton when I was three or four years old. My family, when uh, we arrived from Chile, like 1975, and uh, somehow ended up living in uh, the University of Sussex campus because my father somehow had managed to get some research post there, right? So strangely, I arrived there first when I came to the UK. Then we moved around a lot in the UK and later when I went to go to university and at that time in the, I think it must have been 1990, 91, there was very few electronic music schools or any places where you could study production, it was really limited and still a very new phenomenon, you know, it's difficult to think about that, how it is now, you can study it everywhere now. One of the few universities that had an electronic music studio that was accessible for someone like me was the University of Sussex, so I applied there and ended up studying uh, 20th century music studies, so that degree is already out of date. <laughs> the third year of the course you were allowed to use the studio but I managed to get access to that electronic music studio the whole time I was really interested in. So you learning. actually kind of returned to the place where you first somehow lived yeah. as a three-year-old? Well somehow yeah I was living on that same campus and remember having some really weird flashbacks so we're talking flashbacks within flashbacks now wow. getting fractal now already <laughs> we've only just started anyway so I was there really learning my craft in that studio like how to mix on a big board how to use a sampler as effects units and I had already been exposed to Acid House and tapes and rave culture. I was uh, really hot on the sound and I wanted to make that music in this studio. So I recorded my first 
albums and releases in that electronic music studio of the university. At the same time, in the culture of life around me in Brighton, around the studio, there was uh, obviously a big, quite famous club scene mm -hmm. from lots of clubs that at that time were quite well known, like the Zap Club under the arches on the beachfront and also the free party scene in Brighton would happen uh, on the underground. Um, there were sound systems doing illegal parties on the beaches and some great sound systems like positive sounds and the slack sound system and so on. For me personally, it was a very uh, kind of rigorous development of my music aesthetics. So I would study it, apply it, you know, practice it in the studio and then go out and hear the results, not of not my tracks, but, you know, of the whole music soundtrack of that time. And when did you kind of start becoming more actively involved in the scene? So Acid Box Club nights, <laughs> when did they start? Well, of... you've done your research there. <laughs> Dug out some paper flyers. I thought we only did paper flyers and stuff. Well, well I wanted to... Um, I was already being invited as a... As my productions were going out on Underground, one of the biggest uh, reaching ones was my first sort of commercially released EP on a label called Magnetic North, which is also a Brighton label, which was founded by Dave Clark. Mm -hmm. And uh, he signed me for my debut, official kind of debut in 1992. And so that got connected with a lot of minds over here in Germany, specifically uh, guys like Triple R and Bleed, who were reviewing for a front page magazine at that time. And the Forsync guys in Frankfurt and this uh, I don't know what the, if that scene has a name but there was also a big warehouse free party feeling but a kind of more organised some of it was really big and commercial and some of it was just taking over spaces and they were connected to that sound straight away my EP so I was being invited over to spin and do anything in this very crazy chaotic scene in Germany in the, the early 90s and I wanted to bring some of that energy back to Brighton because mm -hmm. the Brighton club scene it almost felt like old and established already in the, the early 90s it was very clubby you know it had mm -hmm. this like clubbing ritual going on and uh, there was none of no techno really like guys like Dave Clark or whatever they weren't playing in Brighton it was very techno was very marginalised in some ways so what, what was the kind of general sound then at that time in Brighton it was uh, house music and <clears throat> psychedelic trance I think it's still called psychedelic trance, is it, these days? Goa trance and stuff like that. Okay. So there was this uh, sound and this house music sound. Because the guys that were running the systems and taking the risks to mm. do the parties, the, their DJs, that's the sound they were playing. Mm. And uh, there was some acid house, which was really good highlights for me in the, in the parties when some deep acid house would come on. I loved that more, you know. I connected with that more. But this sort of hard uh, experimental edge of Dutch techno or German techno was not coming into Brighton. So I had to act. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I had to, but I felt compelled <laughs> to do something about it. Some of the DJ fees that I was earning over here, I would just like invest them into flyers and, and backdrops because we used to have to hang backdrops up for some reason. Backdrops? Yeah, you know, you, pay, you, you do a club night. You, well, you do a club night and then you have to like, get a backdrop painted and you 
go an hour before the club opens and you hang up the backdrops with the gaffer tape and then the warm-up DJ starts. And would, would you ever be active in the painting of said backdrops? No, but I would hang them up with okay. a staple gun. Okay. No. <laughs> and uh, I remember this as being, I mean, it's not quite as glamorous as Masters at Work <laughs> scene or something, the Brighton scene it was. But, you know, it was still a, a little like this. But once the music was going, it was great because I was able to spin some of the sound that I was picking up over here. I was getting promos over here, you know, handed to me like one time I remember in the, uh, in the Frisur, which was a very early crazy underground venue in, in Berlin at that time. I think it was very early Love Parade, 92. And these guys with funny beards, really pointed, like who were standing in the dark in the corner of this crazy sort of hairdresser club concept. Um, one of them would come and give me a record. And then, because the other guys saw that that guy had given me the record, they would come and give me their record too. And each one had their own record and I would come back and check them out and, and you got yourself a whole club night right there yeah and uh, these records were they were strange and mysterious like just holes drilled through the labels and no not much information about them i just knew it was these guys with the funny beards you know later i re i find out it's all seiko and they're all the finnish guys and they were bringing these little electronic sound bombs on vinyls and they had to just like give them to somebody and i was the chosen one that <laughs> night and i got you know and i'd get these records and then hear this stuff and just like wow man and you, it's so powerful it was so powerful these sounds that i just couldn't listen to them in my room or something you know i had yeah. to do something about it so that's why uh this brighton scene that's why i got involved in the club scene it wasn't for fun <laughs> it <laughs> was really done. just yeah it was i had to get it out so so very early on you were kind of playing out in germany and berlin when did you kind of get connected to trezor and that sound well first through the productions the vinyl releases that mm -hmm. uh, were coming from the detroit alliance the berlin detroit alliance that uh, carola stoiber helped establish uh, with jeff mills and mm -hmm. rob hood uh, one atkins and also there was Maurizio and also some very mysterious but incredible production coming out from the German Berlin scene, also on these, through these channels of the compilations. And album techno was being pioneered, the album format of techno was being pioneered by Trezor at that time. I mean, it was, other album electronic music was more, how would you say, uh, like soundscapey or something. Mm -hmm. And, and these, this idea of a double EP vinyl of something that is very DJable, but at the same time, very challenging music and an album, you know, this was for Trezor. So I got into it that way through the sound. And then I was invited to play the club at some point. Nobody came, I remember. And <laughs> it was one of those down points in that, because the club had sort of cycles of massive popularity and then the old club we're talking yep. about yep. like um, sort of really popular and then there would be a season where somehow it wasn't so popular and it wasn't like a complete hysteria all the time in that old club but there were times where it was intensely popular and other times where you know I would say well, like with the time I went to play or maybe it was just me I don't know <laughs> but nobody really came I remember that about 10 people but I had a great time it was like wow here I am. And then I met Carola and then we got to know each other separately and then uh, she signed me. And I think it was quite uh, lucky and I'm you know, very grateful that that happened because it placed me 
more in the the Berlin scene. Yeah, I guess was it sort of all connected with all the um, the Edinburgh guys, so Cy Beg and Neil Anstrom and Dave mm. Sharida. Like, mm. Was that how? Like, when did you kind of meet all of them? And mm. I'm not very good with exact dates. <laughs> How did it roughly begin? What was well? I guess um, well, Dave Clark was already going up to Sativa, which mm -hmm. was this big night in Edinburgh that Dave Tarida and a bunch of other guys around him were involved in. So in Scotland at that time, there was Sativa in Edinburgh and Pure in Glasgow, and they were doing this uh, an outlet for this uh, amazing energy in this music, of mm -hmm. the, including all of it. So it's not just house and. Mm -hmm techno and it was like all of the the sound electro experimental they had back rooms where you could hear uh, William Burroughs being played on top of ambient soundscapes and then like super heavy main room with real drummers hitting bass drums or in lab coats you know it was totally uh, wild brilliant parties so uh, uh, I think Dave probably hooked me up for a Magnetic North thing and I went up there and uh, did a live show with a television and a computer and, and the uh, television and the computer yeah I used to play with a computer that you plugged into a television so I used to have to have a television on stage okay <laughs> why <laughs> Because that's uh, we, I think that's the way it was. Uh, we didn't have monitor screens; we just had home computers that plugged into TVs. So you had to put this on the technical lineup. This is why I started DJing, actually, <laughs> because the whole thing with moving a TV around was just <laughs> too much. And uh, I learned how to DJ so I could. So you could leave the TV at home. Yeah, basically. I could uh, leave the TV at home. Right, and that's the way to put it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So I met the Scottish guys that way, just like hooking up with them through Sativa and then like having amazing experiences and staying up all night and like having the right laugh. And they would invite me back and then I would invite them down to the events I was doing in Brighton and we built up a bit of a network. Yeah, because I mean, is it fair to say there was a bit of a sort of Brighton-Edinburgh access going on between between you guys yeah we had to well neil uh, neil landstrom had them um, pretty good analog setup at that time because i was quite limited in my technical resources are you still at university at this point i was i think i just left now okay. i think i was I, I was definitely not thinking that a degree was going to help me in any way <laughs> at that point because mm. you know this scene was just amazing and i was having so many experiences already that the academic path was not going to be for me, I realised. As a young man, I mean, I might regret that now, but I had to take some time to concentrate on, on the, the music. I did finish my degree, though, for the record. Congratulations. I did do it, yes. <laughs> and then I was quickly out of the door and touring straight away. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, I think it must have been sort of like 93, 94, and then Neil had this analogue set up in his room, with Jupiters and 909s and stuff like that and all those machines that I just didn't have access to at that time. And that was the sound. It was just really great. So we started to collaborate and did... I released his debut EP on my label Mosquito mm -hmm. Records. So I put his first record out and I also did records for Sativa Records, for mm -hmm. Dave Tarida and so on. So we had this whole flow of on production mostly. And then you did quite you did quite a bit of work with Cy Beg as well. Yeah, Cy actually goes back before all of that happened. Okay, maybe let's so, uh, yeah, let's backtrack time, a little bit. Time slipping like forwards and backwards now. So much for the chronological order. Yeah, here. I mean Cy is um, before Brighton. We I was living in another part of the UK called the Midlands. 
Yeah. Right. Leamington Spa, Stratford upon Avon, Warwickshire, maybe all of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've, it's okay if you've never been there. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> I know right. what you're talking about. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. And yeah, there was a big rave scene going on up there in Coventry. Clubs like the Eclipse and probably a couple of others I can't remember. So it was a, uh, in Birmingham and Coventry, is a big rave scene. So a lot of DJs coming up and a lot of tapes mm. coming out of that scene. I was listening to those tapes more than going to the raves. You know, Easy Groove, Top Buzz, Groove Rider, these guys, you know. And that time was as famously discussed in, in the uh, electronic musicologists talking about that time where rave music was, you could play Richie Hort in Cybersonic and you could play like a Blaps Posse uh, break sound or whatever. And it was all really mixed up and wild and wonderful. So the tapes were brilliant. And that's where I first heard Technarchy and, and Dutch uh, Gabbard stuff. And, you know, it was really good. So around that time, I was totally crazy about the sound and was trying to make it on my home computer all the time but I didn't really know so much about the culture I was very disassociated because we didn't know I mean we didn't have the internet really just had Mm. the record shop Mm -hmm. in the Midlands there wasn't so much record shop action either so it was difficult to know what the tracks were where they were coming from and Cy was in Leamington and he was much more up to date with everything and he introduced me to organized where everything's coming from. It's like that sound, that's Juan Atkins, that's from Detroit. These records, Metroplex, uh, Transmat, they're coming from Detroit and this is a Chicago sound. You know, he totally like mentored me back there and helped me organize what everything was. So he's definitely uh, an important cat in my story, but mm-hmm. we then grounded the, the label Mosquito Records together. Mm-hmm. Tried to run this together for a while, but he uh, kind of went off production wise into a different direction more into breaks and stuff and I, I don't know what happened back there sometime later I think he's working more in film sound production and stuff now mm-hmm. but he does put albums out every now and then doesn't he are you still kind of in, we in, do I mean like touch, yeah we keep in touch like with Facebook and stuff like that now nowadays but we don't we're not necessarily planning a comeback yet come back. <laughs> you never know and then he he moved to Edinburgh well, Sai has always stayed in London. Okay. Yeah, and the Scottish guys are all mostly still up there. I think Neil Neil was in New York for a while. And uh, I um, think everyone is more or less in one place for a while now. I mean, I ended up in Berlin, actually, out of all of that crew, the No Future crew or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, well, is this the No Future Collective that we're More talking about here? More or less, yeah. Uh, it was graphic designers. Uh, well, one crazy cool graphic designer, Matt Consume, he was the, our visual artist that mm-hmm. did a lot of uh, quite emblematic uh, artworks. Emma Solo, who was uh, running the office with me and organising our activities. And so you had an office? Interventions. It was, it was yeah, we had an office and a phone number. We had a fax machine. We were serious. Whoa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, when internet arrived in 96, then... Changed everything. We had to uh, like stop relying on the fax machine and do emails and stuff and never look back. So what kind of things did you do t- together? You said interventions. Well, that's right. We would organise happenings like with crew. We would bring people together, like with the Spy Mania crew, for example, kind of merged with them for a while. And mm-hmm. we were like this big collective group of crazy 
DJs who would just turn up and play five turntables and CDs and drum machines at the same time. In the, we did this in the Meltdown Festival in 99, I think. Uh, John Peel curated one edition and he invited like the whole collect messy collective like all of you lot up so we all just went up in a van you know and play everything all at the same time that's my <laughs> recollection of it in the south bank in the barbican great <laughs> so stuff like that so the collective initially had quite a manifesto behind it and was quite uh, anti-industry mm-hmm. but uh, also avoiding being um, like it wasn't completely anarchic you know it was quite technology based and, and structured I was grounding conceptually like activities on on post-structuralist philosophy and stuff like that i mean it was a bit crazy or not but it wasn't just a hedonistic mad thing although that was an aspect of it (laughs) at that time but there was some thinking going on behind it too and like alternative structures for production and using this to basically uh allow the music underneath the official uh, licensing stuff that you have to do you know like these things that used to be called backdoor factory pressings because they kind of come in and out of the back door of the Mm -hmm. pressing plant and they're not recognized with numbers and things like that you know so we were Mm -hmm. trying to find uh, it wasn't just DIY Mm -hmm. DIY ethic that people knock around oh yeah it's like DIY ethic it kind of sounds like easy or something you know Mm -hmm. but it was really hard work and challenging that you had to even the white label idea do you know what i'm talking yeah, about like so yeah. you would make these white label records so thereby avoiding the whole label structure so you don't even have to have a record label you press yourself and get it all done you still have to drive around in your car and like sell them one by one to the record store and stuff like that it was really hard work even back then so this kind of current era of the digital uh, band camp and mm-hmm. uh, you know try to sell your stuff and kind of wipe clean all of that hard work really well it just for me it's just like more of it it's even harder now <laughs> actually really? yeah it's like there's something not quite right about the way it is now it's like well that's how we were doing it back then different media mm-hmm. we didn't have digital files if i had digital files i would have been doing it with digital files too you know but uh, it's pretty old-fashioned mm-hmm. it's not a new thing the way the the digital there uh, DIY thing is coming. It's, it's like we were doing it already 20 years ago and before then mm-hmm. as well with cassette labels and, and posting things through the post. So sometimes I think about like, have we really solved anything? Is anything actually improved? Have we progressed in any way? I look at the major labels that we used to rally, try to, you know, go under major labels and label deals and stuff and be indie. And I look at at the situation now with Google and Apple and like investing so much in music as a commodity, you know, like the Google Play and all of this stuff. I mean, they're investing millions in music. They don't invest millions in literature. Crazy. And so they could just, a friend of mine said this morning, you know, where they could buy the whole music industry with just the spare change in their pocket, these huge companies. And they're even bigger than the major labels were back then. And they're controlling the whole thing. So it's even harder to do, be independent, you know what I mean? Okay, yeah. I mean, this is a whole, I don't know if you want to go into this topic, but I've got plenty of ranting about I, I, it. I bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> but it comes from really way back there. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when I was younger in the early 90s and, and setting up these collectives or whatever they were, they were structures. You've had several of these sort of mm. collectives. I guess, you know, the ne- is, am I right in thinking the next one was something that you set up in Barcelona? 
Well, I tried to do then, because uh, it's really difficult to keep people together, as anyone who's tried to start a band knows. I don't know if you've ever tried which to start you, a band. Which you've also done as well. <laughs> right, yeah, so it's really hard <laughs> to keep people together because everyone, uh, even though you might all begin with the same focus, but you know, everyone's got their own uh, dynamics going on in their lives and, mm. and inevitably sort of pulls people apart. It's only exceptional situations where you can get a band or a group of people to go 25 uh, years together. And I, I really respect uh, bands like that, like, the young gods and in switzerland you know like and others around it's like just you just have to love them whatever they play you just love them just for managing to keep it together yeah you know and uh, inspiration so in electronic music as well we have we don't have this band group format you don't have to have it you know you can be a solo artist and have a whole career but we have other relationships like the one with the label mm -hmm. or the, the one with the record shop owner. And some of these have been lost on the way. I was saying for these reasons, I was kind of, I would say those that collective period and that sort of mm -hmm. ideology and let's try and do something to change you know, the world. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was seemed like totally radical at the time, but actually, as we've seen now, it's, mm. it became completely normalized. Mm -hmm. Right. So, in the 2000s or so, I, w I went to Spain in 2001. I left the UK. Is there a particular reason why? Big beat. You <laughs> <laughs> drove you out of the country. <laughs> yeah, quick, quick, quick answer to that one. Okay. Yeah, I had just become very saturated with purely hedonistic scene, electronic music scene in Brighton. It was, I think, the Brighton bubble. It was just before uh, Brighton became really famous for indie uh, alternative music and great bands coming, you know, like yeah. Electro Lane and all these bands. They were just kind of like after that time. And I was just, all I had was just saturated with like Norman Cook playing at that time, you know, yeah. like, and, and, and the whole thing with taking great soul records full of feeling and chopping them up really badly and making them go, da, 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 and drunk people falling over because the drugs had changed, you know. So yeah. it wasn't like an ecstasy uh, generation anymore. It was vodka and speed and, and, and coke. And it's like really unpleasant. And the dance floors were just like sticky floors. And like, vomit everywhere. Vomit. And, and it was like the, we were saying earlier, the mega, mega white thing, lager, lager. Spawn Slippy uh, captured that time for me. I mean, that song is, is like that. That bitter tone in that song was what made me want to leave the UK because it was just like I got so tired of it felt like it was just that's like the sticky floor on mm -hmm. the dance floor you know just <laughs> so I had a chance to get out and go somewhere completely different but why Barcelona? well I was Spanish speaking because of my uh, Chilean background mm -hmm. so language wasn't so much of a barrier and I went there with a relationship at the time and stayed there for 10 years suddenly it's <laughs> like that you know there's this there's these streets have you ever been to barcelona yeah, yeah. okay so there's the ciutat vea which is the really old part of the city which is from the medieval times or mm. something so there's all these tiny thin narrow streets it's all in complete darkness right it's yeah. very dark and then it's like enough for two people to pass mm -hmm. down these between these buildings and and I have this memory of the nightlife being like being in one bar, getting drunk or something and dancing to the radio, you know, like they would just put the radio on really loud and like you dance to the radio or something. And then somehow just the door of the bar is open and you just kind of 
fall out of the door into the into the door on the other side of those little narrow streets and you're in another bar so the, the part between leaving one bar and going to the other bar is literally just a, a few steps across you know and then then you're in another bar and then there's like a some flamenco music or something oh, i was awesome it's great so basically it's a complete change of com scene. yeah well completely delirious uh, <laughs> different type of uh, of hedonism and, okay. and then all the sort of beach culture and the Mediterranean lifestyle is much more relaxed so it took a, that whole time there took a bit of the edge off my uh, young sort of uh, ambitions to set up a music alternative music empire okay <laughs> I kind of like slowed down a bit and just thought no no I, I just build a little studio and which is the Studio 55. Yeah, it was called, yeah, Station 55, Station 55 it was called. Sorry. And it was just a sort of a way of integrating production from studio to release to uh, getting stuff out. So, so it's all in-house and music. Yeah, in-house. And, yeah. and, and I put a lot of time into the studios all the way through my career. I've tried to do the best studio with the resources I've got. So the one in Spain was was my uh, masterpiece okay. design, that one. And I, I really had a, a great studio at that time for a few years. And I did the albums on Nova Mute, Mute Records. Mm -hmm. uh, I did these and I did the album called The Never Engine, which was my last output on Trezor in 2005. And uh, it was this period of my production. And as I worked with my band project, I mention it because it kind of makes sense, actually, in this discussion, because uh, I told you about how uh, I admired the way that musicians can stick together mm -hmm. or collectives can, can stick together. And I think, you know, there's certain power in the music itself that helps groups form around the sound and, and stick together. So I thought, look, I'm going to just try and have a band and do it because, you know, it's a real challenge and I like to have a challenge. And so I want to do this. And also the other reason why I wanted to do it was to take away songwriting ideas from my electronic music to get my electronic music more pure and okay. abstract, right? So I didn't want to have this thing where you put words on top of techno. Which is what you were doing before? Perhaps? I've never really done that, but I was trying to do it a bit. Okay. On the album called Station 55, mm -hmm. I was experimenting a little with this, but I felt it was like, it wasn't right. There was something wrong with trying to mix the two worlds up. So I separated them and I was able to do all my songwriting ideas with my guitar playing and, and in a more conventional band format. So I wrote songs, sang them on stage, played, you know, did the whole thing. And then I was able to do this, the most pure techno album of all of them, which was the, the Never Engine that I mentioned okay. before. And I guess to slightly backtrack and maybe illustrate that would be maybe using Super Collider as something that you yeah, would Yeah, right, so use. we skipped that over. We completely <laughs> glazed over that one, but I want to bring it back in because yeah. would that be where you were trying to sort of write lyrics over electric yeah, music? Yeah, again, again, that was the... Obviously, it wasn't just one album where I experimented with it. I experimented with, with Jamie Liddell, mm -hmm. who's an exceptional talent, and um, not just with his voice, but the way he thinks. And also in the studio, in production, he's an exceptionally good mixer and has great technical awareness, you know. So Super Collider, uh, the project for the listeners that might not have 
done their research quite as well as you and have got this far in the interview they probably know already what it is but yeah it was my uh, collaboration with Jamie Liddell where we signed something like as close to a kind of major deal as I have ever come close to which was with Loaded Records and Skint Records in Brighton who at that time were had just been uh, bought by Sony Records so it was like quite close to the you know the man and all everything I'd been kind of going against all these years but it was a chance to get this incredible music that we were doing, which was totally uh, out there at the time. And we could feel that it was very modern and very uh, grounded at the same time. So it was a chance for, and Jamie for his voice, to get that stuff out to a massive distribution. We were interested, I was interested in that. And this is why I tagged along a bit on that project. Okay. And uh, the studio, was getting really used to the max, like every possible thing we could do with every machine. We were stretching all the limits. I get the impression that it was quite an important project for you and quite a, you invested a lot of, you know, mm. thought and passion behind it, but you were disappointed with the results perhaps? Well, what happened is the reception to it was all, let's say that they, could, they couldn't get past Jamie as frontman and me as the scientist operating the machines or something okay. this kind of like standardized view of things mm -hmm. and uh, we were working and we were collaborating in a very different way you know it was just because he was up there more visible it wasn't we weren't erasure or something like that you know and I felt like it was just being held back by people weren't ready for for this type of music yet or something I don't know okay. what's going on and actually in in the long run everyone has lots of people ask me about are we going to do another album and they miss the the spark that was going on in those records okay so, and would you uh it's a kind of difficult basically because jamie lives in america i think mm -hmm. and i live here and you know we don't have that major deal anymore <laughs> so there's no budgets going on but i don't know if that's something where i want to be because as we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier i then would feel that the songwriting ideas, mm -hmm. singing songs about stuff, it's not sitting comfortably with the abstract language of music, uh, the electronic music, which is about sounds and sonorities and energies, and, and it's much more freedom in, in it. And I, I think I'm more interested in that. You know, it took me a while to figure that out, basically, a few albums. Yeah, just a few. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Well, we were around album number 10 yeah. by now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, don't, I'm, I don't have any negative feelings about that work at all or anything yeah. like that. I mean, I enjoy to listen to them sometimes too, and I'm very proud of that work. Maybe it's almost a good thing, like, that people didn't really get it at the time, but now they're kind of thinking, oh, we, we missed the boat here. But yeah, and maybe it's not about people either, whoever the imaginary audience are. Maybe it's just about me. Yes. And uh, I was not quite uh, finding my the right place, you know. Which might bring us right up to date. I don't know if you're Ooh, we've ready. Got, we've got so much more to go. Well, it kind okay. of slipping nicely into your band project, which is mm -hmm. Night of the Brain. Yeah. Obviously, it, would be, it was quite a different setup, right, between how you were working with Jamie. This yes. is like a very pure... Somehow, yeah, Band more project. pure, yeah, about rehearsing and getting okay. getting the chops and the, doing the changes. <laughs> and uh, you performed, I'd imagine? A few times, not very many shows. And mostly it's a studio project like Super right. Collider was, because all the way through this interview, I hope listeners get the impression that where the shit happens is in the studio, right, for me. That's okay. where everything's going down. 
it's the most important part of the whole music production process and touring and playing live and all that is not really my main priority okay uh, other musicians see it the other way you know but that's the way it is for me so most of my time and thinking and creative energy is happening in the studio in the studio but then where we have to take the stuff out on on the road somehow and that's always been very difficult for me to do does it help when you perform in other kind of situations for example um chemo and real-time stuff mm. is that something that you feel more interested in mm. performing because it's almost like your studio is mm -hmm. is the performance that's a good question and uh when you are challenged by performance like if it is an issue for you like it has been for me like how do i translate this level of creative work and thinking that i'm doing in the studio in this mode which is often a very deep listening mode you listen to these speakers in this great room in your comfort zone and you know how do i translate that into this situation where you've got shitty monitors people shouting at you drinking no one's some people with their back to you and you know you've got to do the best show ever or they're disappointed and they'll come and tell you how disappointed they are you know how do you how do we map that it was difficult so i started to find affinity with improvisers As in barcelona there's a long tradition of uh, improvisational musicians uh, going back into flamenco music which is a purely a uh, very improvisational form and is deeply embedded in the culture there. So the, you have the improvisation music, very structured, deeply embedded in culture. And I got that in Spain really deep. And also working with the more punk noise scene, no wave scene there in Catalonia. So I started to see that as a way of having an experience performing that was closer to pure creation of sound and also i could do a lot of the creative work in my studio by designing systems so programming and coding systems that could in themselves interact in ways that can generate something like techno mm, yeah. <laughs> that i like yeah so that somehow would optimize the systems would optimize themselves to make the kind of rhythms and sounds that I was looking for when I would go to the record store and try and find, when I was DJing, you know, I would try to find these records. Didn't matter who was making them. They had to have a certain sound, right? Mm -hmm. So I tried to build a system that could create something close to that sound real time. And to operate it, I have to improvise from nothing. Since 2006, I was doing this live show, every show, improvising from nothing. So I go up there live on the system and just play but most people in the club scene have not they just didn't appreciate that element but it doesn't really matter it's the, in the end you know as long as i'm up there and i'm doing it then then that's it so it worked really good for me for a number of years and i stopped djing and buying records mm -hmm. and just got more and more into refining the code behind that system so at this point of are you kind of moving more and more away from club music in general and the club scene and kind of slipping mm. more into sound art and um i guess kind of composing for dance and contemporary yeah ballet. yeah I, i worked in contemporary dance for six or seven years in switzerland at the jill joban's company i was the music director there and produced a number of large-scale compositions for contemporary dance how did you meet and how did that sort of come about we met through Franz Treichler, who's the 
founding member of the Young Gods in Switzerland, who's a very important alternative musician in Switzerland. He was already uh, working in contemporary dance and he wanted to concentrate on his band career a little more. So he pulled someone in, he chose someone and he chose me and pulled me in and okay. placed me in that context. And I stayed there for some years and learned a hell of a lot about theatre work, about culture outside the club scene, about sounds, the materiality of sounds, about what happens to electronic sounds when people actually listen to them. Like so in theatres, in these dance pieces, the, the public that comes, they're seated and they have fantastic listening conditions. It's like a cinema, you know, you have really good sound system and you've got something to keep your eyes entertained. You've mm -hmm. got incredible uh, dance and physicality on stage, you know, and this sound and music. And I was able to compose in four speakers or, or more and quadraphonic stuff and all of this massive, uh, limitless place to do uh, electronic sound and it's much better than the club scene. I, I was going to say, it sounds like something that's definitely suits you more as someone who... It's, it was much better, but then I also found that it was limited in some ways because uh, you can't do, like, there's some music that doesn't work there either. It's too, got too much energy. So, for example, if you start putting kick drums into that sort of situation and the people are sitting in the chairs and they're dancing, you know, it's too much rhythm. It's too rigid and uh, it's not right, you know, so... And you can't do like micro composition, which is something I'm also interested in, which is working on a hyper detailed level with sound. So one composition might last about one and a half seconds, you know. Okay. Right. You can't do this uh, on stage either because it's like somebody might cough and miss it. <laughs> Could you maybe tell us about some of the pieces that you worked with during this period? Well, I particularly want to know about this text to speech. That was piece. a great one. Um, because it was quite real-time generated. So I've seen some videos, so can you oh. maybe describe what was going on? Yeah, the soundtrack was intertwined with the choreography to such an extent that the, choreo uh, the dancers had to be at a certain, to their, at their computers, for example, at a certain time in the choreography in order to type uh, phrases into a text-to-speech software system that would speak certain text, and then that text perhaps might get processed and manipulated in real time through about eight or nine different speakers on stage and sometimes the dancers would take the speakers and, da and dance with them and the speakers and the sounds became elements in the choreography so you know you get the idea it's like a lot more and there's sorry maybe say ideas. how many how many dancers how many people were on a stage on that piece uh, i think there's <clears throat> six five or six mm. and you're all kind of working together I mean, how, what's your role in, in this? It changed uh, during that time. I was either um, composing the piece over a period of three or four months, intensive work with the choreography, like it's being composed together. Mm -hmm. And then it would go on tour with an operator who I would teach how to operate the, the sound score. And for another piece, for the final one that I did for the company called Spider Galaxies, um, I was operating that piece in real time. Maybe... You could explain how this whole piece works. Mm. That one, well, how it works, I don't know. But, uh, oh, maybe describe it for the people score. Who don't know. Yeah, how uh, the similarities. I mean, it's uh, this one is was quite uh, difficult and challenging because the score is generated on a real time generative algorithmic music system called Kima. You mentioned cool, it Kima. earlier. So this is a professional system, and it's not really a kind of a laptop language. It's quite. Uh, 
difficult to learn, has a big learning curve. I've been studying it since 2006. So I created that piece with the maker of that system, Carla Scaletti. So she's the uh, creator of Kima, and we collaborated together on this score. Uh, her company, the Symbolic Sound, is based in Champaign, Illinois, in Chicago. So we would collaborate with video footage and back and forth composition. And then I was executing the the timeline. It's called it's a timeline of mm. of code, which creates the music. <laughs> in very tight synchronicity with the choreography. Mm -hmm. So it was really exciting to do it, nerve-wracking, because the music is chained. It's structured and similar enough for the dancers to know what's going on. But within it, it's changing and, and different every time it's performed. Is this something that is kind of rehearsed extensively? Like, how does it... What's the relationship like between the dancers on stage and, the, and you as a... There's a whole lot of different... The, the choreography is a huge sphere. I mean, you can yeah. go from free improvisation to a purely conceptual dance. For example, some pieces where no one actually moves, but they're on stage and there might be slight movement or something and it's very conceptual. Or to ballet, to... Uh, Mm -hmm. So music also f maps the whole range from having a band live on stage playing electric guitars to uh, f a completely free Merce Cunningham and John Cage. You know, they wouldn't even meet before the pe they would m meet on stage. The music and the choreography would happen on stage at mm -hmm. the premiere for okay. the first time, for example. So, you know, there's a whole range. But in the work that I was doing there, it was very tightly composed and okay. very tightly choreographed and intensely rehearsed for six to eight months or so. Right. Thank you for asking me about that, though. The problem with dance pieces is that they, the music and the piece go to theatres. And yeah. so you don't, not that many people get to see it. Yeah. Is it something that you would uh, still like working with now or would like to? Yeah, I'd like to, but... Um, it would need to be at a certain level of production and um, conditions because mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm not ready to start down in the rough scratch DIY, uh, yeah. you know, let's do a jam in the empty warehouse kind of level. So <laughs> I really very much enjoyed the conditions of theatres yeah. to work in, you know. Like a sound check in in club scene, you get sound check for an hour if you're lucky, and in the rock scene, if you're if you're unfortunate enough to be in a festival with lots of bands, you might not get a sound check, but you might get five or ten minutes to plug in your guitar and tune it right, mm -hmm. and then play the best show you've ever played ever. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly demanding, and in theatre, you get five days or something wow. to set up and sound check and tune the, you know, maybe even a couple of days. For me, it was so much luxury. It's like yeah. oh, I can hear the sound, and oh, I can adjust. The equalization and the volume and stuff so it was it's really great conditions so for that reason uh, I would I would like to okay so and then what was the turning point that kind of after all of this brought you essentially back to electronic music mm. and I'm now bringing us kind of almost back to date yeah into so you moved to Berlin mm. 2012 and yeah then yeah I did move to Berlin in 2012 and I had to uh I met these guys Again, we met lots of times <laughs> over the years at these guys that run a record label called Shit Catapult Records. Mm -hmm. um, Daniel Matteo and the T. Raumschmier, Marco Haas. So you'd known, you've known them for like the time before when you would be coming to Berlin? Yeah, I've known them somehow for 100 years or something. 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so then um, they said, look, things were going quite well for them actually and they've managed to keep their shit together 
quite some time now. I think they're on 150th release right now. Yeah. So one way or another, still there. And this, they said, Christian, you know, they kind of pulled me in from the desert a bit and pulled me back in and said, hey, you know, make a record for, for, for us. us, for our scene, for our, where we're coming from. And, and, you know, so I made the album called The Inertials in 2012 for that label and put some beats in there and stuff. How did it feel? How <laughs> it felt it really feel? good, you know. It was nice to also bring some of the depth from the contemporary composition, like bring that deep uh, electronic listening experience that I'd had in Switzerland and bring it into the the album. Well, did I read somewhere that it was kind of the assimilation of everything that electronic music represented to you in one album? Right, yeah, that sounds like the press release That's to me. <laughs> smacks of press release, doesn't it? But in essence, yeah. was it kind of like you've had this kind of... you've. It can't be everything, obviously, everything, on, on the limited format of about four to five minutes before people's attention is lost and they put another CD on. But it's a big part of the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm honest to what where I've been coming from. I don't feel like I was turning my back on anything and saying, I'm not going to do that style because of this and this. I wasn't limiting myself. But the language that came out in that release was really beautiful listening experience. And, you know, I'm proud of, of that work. I tried to keep the level, technical level of my work as high as possible, given the resources I've got at the time. So, so it lasts for years, you know, that's one of the reasons why I keep that production level so high. So it will last for 10 years, 15 years, you listen to it again, and it's like still amazing sounding, you know. So that's the kind of uh, thinking behind the album. Then they asked me to do another one, which is where I am right now. Via the Eselbrucker. Oh, right. I was going to skip over that one because no. I didn't want you to uh, get Ruin upset. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can play a bit of that one in the background just so people get a feeling of uh, what that little detour was. But no, th I don't see that as a, as a... For me, I understand it all in a very... Like a composer, if you can yep. go through... If, if you want to dedicate some time to following a band or a composer mm -hmm. or something, you know, they're going to be going all over the place exploring what they need to explore. And that album, again, a wonderful sound world, conceptually very strong, but no beats on it. And you can't really dance to it in the conventional sense of a rhythm that you can hook on to. I wanted but, to pick um, up on the reference to um, Ianis Zanakis. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That's right. He's a composer from uh, from Greece. 20th century uh, pioneering and sort of turning mathematical modes towards composition right yeah he's uh, I mean he's like a lot of the academic more academic world of composition you know a lot of it is very reliant on conceptual work conceptual grounding so at club music it's not so reliant on conceptual grounding let's say you know they have other frameworks like cultural um, references to their own culture and stuff like that. So in, in the more academic composition world, there's things like mathematics going on. Sometimes it's musicology, like music history, like references to other composers from the past and stuff. And in the case of Zanakis, he was really interested in uh, formal structures, almost like algorithmic stuff. It's much more complex than simple algorithms, but for getting inspiration from natural phenomena, like the movement of uh, particles, like all sorts of stuff like this. So it's incredible, incredibly deep. 
And how does it tie into into your album or your work that you would... Well, I think in that particular example of the Eselsbrücke album, I felt like exploring what it's like to have a really strong conceptual grounding before you start making the sounds. It's like the challenge thing, you know, it's like I want to do this to give myself some meaning to complete yet another album because you know? <laughs> I think that one is number 15 or 16 or something okay. and and I just can't sit in front of my drum machine and hit some buttons and expect that anything amazing is going to come out I have to be honest you know you've got to put the you need a lot some structure more work first. into it and I, I found that to be a very fruitful year of study and research and the result is is that album okay mm-hmm. does that kind of lead into you're now your current album. Yeah, so 59 minutes, 20 <laughs> seconds later, I'm going to promote my new album, which is uh, called Polyphonic Beings, and it's on uh, said uh, Ship Catapult label from Berlin. This one in itself is based on some... Di- I, I also did some, how can we say, prepare the ground or the like, get Lay conditions. Yeah, is that the English expression? Lay some groundwork. <laughs> get some, con- some fertile conditions for for some innovative creative work from me not in reference to anybody else mm-hmm. i mean i'm not listening to other people in the scene or anything like that you know i just want to originate on my own path so in this album what i did was try to uh, open the phenomena that might be affecting the moments where i do the composition and the creation the actual creating of the raw material from nothing to something so like this kind of improvisation mode where before you're going to blow your horn you know you're just kind of like trying to tune into your space like where you are an awareness of your place of the now of of the moment of like all these things from outside like a raised sensitivity and awareness and i tried to like do this with the electronic music okay so which means in the studios and the way I try to force it through is not go to my studio and sit there and sit there and hope that there's some great inspirational bird will come down and start programming the 909 for me. You know, it's like what I did was uh, call up a few people and around the world and called up my network and said, hey, man, you know, would you mind if I come over and record a bit in your studio and do some sounds and stuff like that? And I traveled oh, okay. and I traveled uh, on a budget. So one of the places I was uh, that opened up for me was a studio in Los Angeles in West Hollywood called Chalice, which is actually a $2,000 a day mega studio that's frequented by great recording artists of the R&B and hip hop industry. Wow. And, uh, so who's your friend that you know there? And then? Lady Gaga's and so on. Well, I have a colleague there who's okay. uh, the tech. So he said around Christmas time, there's not a lot going on here and maybe you can get some downtime working through the night on the SSL consoles, all these machines. So I scraped together some some cash and got a ticket to LA and uh, took him up on it. And that, for example, was incredible experience and the music transformed So massively. it was about sort of the physicality of you in a space making music. Yeah, and trying to, just trying to do these things that you get these opportunities that open up and just seeing them, being aware of them and like doing it instead of thinking, oh, I can't go to LA because I've got to like do this or that or I can't, oh, I can't afford it or, you know. And then on the other hand, I went to uh, just quickly before I have to f- say the other part of this, which is that 
Similarly, there's a crazy uh, opportunity that came up that was to go to a tiny village in the southernmost part of the Japanese peninsula called uh, Kawakami and a tiny village about uh, two, three hours into the forest. And I spent some time in a little hut next to the, sh- the forests with two Genelec speakers. Nice. Um, was this part of the second hometown project? That's right. It was a, a, a kind of a creative retreat that some friends of mine from the dance scene had for their own reasons that we won't go into here. They're trying to bring some artists mm. into this very sort of extremely unknown part of Japan and uh, ate oranges from trees and the locals would bring would kindly bring sausages for me to eat oh, and wow. uh, I had no need for coins or money and I saw hunters... Uh, with rifles sh- shooting boar and skinning boar and, and so many experiences that I had uh, and so connected with the nature there. I had a very moving experience there and was creating and writing music all the time. So really just trying to open to all of these experiences and the music just really transformed. And then I did similar studio sofa surfing mm-hmm. That's what I'm calling it, you know, in, in Copenhagen, in a kind of more punky style studio, which reminded me of the days in Barcelona and stuff. And also in, in Berlin here in my home setup with, uh, in, I live in Prenzlauer Berg, so, you know, the baby's crying next nice. door and the, <laughs> the, the gay couple arguing upstairs and, you know, like trying to make the music. That's how the music is shaped on this album. Okay. And that's all I can really say about it. We could go through the techniques and stuff involved but i'll let leave that to the listener and um is something that you're particularly proud of does it kind of sum up seeing everything mm. that you've kind of got to the, at this well, point yeah somehow i'm always working on the next thing though you you're aware you're aware that the public gets everything with a delay uh, yeah don't blame me it's the music business uh-huh. <laughs> it's still really slow but i'm working on um a follow-up to that out al- to this album already so poly- you're just uh, a serial album maker yeah somehow <laughs> i do other things in between as well but i'm already planning it it's in the planning stages uh, how am i going to approach it and uh, but uh, i expect to have that one finished sometime in 2015 okay first part and it's like it should be out hopefully either if I'm fast before the summer and I just wanted to maybe kind of wrap up perhaps on the this crowdfunding project that you oh god yeah I have to mention that well that would be great if anyone who's got this far in the interview is still listening <laughs> then they can tune into uh, the crowdfunding project they can log in there it's, it's on startnext.de which is a German. Can you tell us what what so what's it what's platform. it about? So you're wanting to restore and remaster. Sort of yeah, a it's lot of about your back- restoring and remastering and reissuing a large part of my back catalogue, which is about eighty to hundred tracks. The entire Trezor albums, wow. the Four Sync and Mill Plateau albums, and and the DAT tape, but a box of DAT tapes that my mum found. So why are you why are you doing it now? Just as a kind of. A couple of reasons. One of them is that I'm rather shocked at that the, somehow that now that we live in the future, the quality and fidelity of music is like much less than it was in the past. So I'm hearing all this stuff ripped up onto YouTube at 320 or less MP3 quality 
through people's crappy preamps and stuff was when I recorded it 15 years ago, I was trying to keep the quality much higher than that. So that's not satisfactory for a representation of my life's work. So someone's got to take the initiative for me to really archive it yeah. and have it up there at the best quality intended yeah and no one else is going to do it for me so i have to uh, ask for some help to raise the money to master it properly because all of that stuff is quite expensive so mm-hmm. the machines and the remastering process so uh, that's what the fundraiser is about uh, that's actually the an ongoing project in parallel with my album for next year is also to re-release about 15 albums at once <laughs> from the past lots of past present future mashup going on yeah yeah that's that's the good thing about music you can just plug the past into the future and generate a secondary now 